Hello and welcome back to Euangelion as we interpret scripture and life with our focus on Paul's letter to the Galatians. So we're in Galatians chapter 5 and we'll look at the second half of the chapter today. One of the chief quandaries of Galatians 5 and 6 has been trying to understand how it fits in with the context of the rest of the letter. Now it's tempting sometimes to suggest that chapters 1 and 2 of Galatians deal with biography, chapters 3 and 4 with theology, and then the last two chapters with ethics. A scholarship has long since recognised that this is a fairly artificial distinction. For example, one of the densest and most important theological conclusions is actually at the end of chapter 2. And as we saw a couple of podcasts ago, there's some key biographical material in chapter 4. So as such, this simple division is really unhelpful. For that reason, I'll make a few um, initial positive comments about this section, which will lead us nicely into this uh, section uh, as we uh, unpack Paul's thoughts here. Firstly, it's reasonably clear that love is a major theme in Galatians 5 and 6. This love seems to be the outworking of the freedom with which the previous chapter ended. Secondly, Paul's position on the law is likely to have led to some fear about a potential moral vacuum amongst the Galatian Gentiles. If he was asking the Galatians not to pay close heed to the law of Moses, there may well have been nervousness about what moral guidance would have been conducted by in the community. Paul's fairly clear about how the community's moral barometer will now work. Two words, the spirit. Thirdly, if we continue to contextualise Paul's arguments within a new covenant framework, then actually the spirit and the law will be working in conjunction and not at odds. We'll return to this point in chapter 6, verse 2. But with these things in mind, let's consider what Galatians 5, 13 through 26 contributes to the broader argument. Let's read uh, from uh, Galatians 5, 13 to 26. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. 
Now it's more likely than not that there was a clear division within the community. Now I see no reason to uh, complicate it further than saying that there would have been those believers loyal to Paul's gospel and those enticed by the opposing teachers. Such a division may well play into the issues at the beginning of chapter 6. We'll deal with that next time. It's most likely these two groups who were potentially biting and devouring each other in verse 15 of chapter 5. It's clearly those people enticed by the rival message to whom Paul directs his comments. They're the ones in danger of using their newfound freedom in Christ as an opportunity for what Paul calls the flesh in verse 15. I'll refer you again to my earlier comments about how the term flesh is used in Paul's letters. It can refer to the literal physical flesh of the body. It sometimes can serve as a very generic cipher for sin, but usually it refers to that weak, susceptible element of the human makeup which succumbs to sinful behaviour. Here the word appears to be doing two things. In one sense, it stands for the law, in the sense that I mentioned in the podcast on Galatians 4, 21-31. Remember, law, flesh and slavery there work in a kind of tandem, opposite to promise, spirit and freedom. In one sense, then, it suggests that the Galatian Gentiles should not use their freedom to reattach themselves to the Torah. In another sense, it does represent that weak component of the human makeup in the sense that Paul suggests in Galatians 3 verse 3. Now that they've been made alive through spirit, they ought not to cave in and be led away by the false teachers. Now, rather confusingly, the verb which means serve and the verb which means to be enslaved by is the same in Greek. Uh, It's the verb duleo. Personally, I would translate the last part of verse 13 as, in the context of love, be enslaved to one another. Now, it sounds like a slightly strange paradox that freedom ought to lead to a new kind of slavery. However, this slavery to one another is where the bonds are not bonds of oppression, but bonds of love. And you can imagine how powerful that might be in a community, a community of people enslaved to one another by love. This, Paul goes on to say, is the entire purpose of the law. To be enslaved to one another in the context of love is to love your neighbour as yourself. It may seem slightly strange in a letter which seems to be directing people away from the law that Paul will talk about the law being fulfilled in love. But, as Bruce Molina and John Pilch have suggested, group attachment and concern for group integrity are what the whole Mosaic law is all about. At the beginning of chapter 6, Paul makes reference to something that he'll call the law of Christ, another very difficult term to unpack given the context of the letter. And in fact, the verb that he uses there is very close to the verb he uses in verse 14 here to mean fulfill. When we get to chapter 6, I'll try and make that connection clear. Care for one another, then, ought to prevent the kind of breakdown of communications that is being experienced in Galatia. Indeed, if they walk by the Spirit, as per the command in verse 16, then they won't succumb to the desire of flesh and be tempted to lapse. So then, verse 17 and 18 bring the Spirit into sharp contrast with flesh and law. 
The spirit and the law, according to Paul, have different desires and objectives. And based on the end of chapter 4, one might argue that the spirit's objective is freedom and that the law's objective is slavery. The Stoic philosopher Epictetus wrote in his Arian discourses, For freedom is not acquired by satisfying yourself with what you desire, but by destroying your desire. Now, whilst Paul doesn't call for any such destruction of desire, he does seem aware that obedience to the Spirit leads to an embracing of the Spirit's desire as opposed to an embracing of one's own. To walk by the Spirit then, whatever else it might call to mind, at very least means to listen to the Spirit's promptings about correct moral behaviour. If one so listens to the Spirit's promptings, Paul declares that the believers are not under law. Those who carry out the desire of their flesh become inherently selfish. And that's why I think the um, majority of vices in the vice list in verse 19, 19 and following are to do with division, disharmony and self-indulgence. The first five deeds of the flesh or works of the flesh belong together in that traditionally they're often linked with idolatry. But the vice list is dominated by these expressions of division, uh, of disunity. Of the 15 vices in the vice list in verses 19 through 20, no less than eight come under this category. Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissension, factions, and envy. If there was a split in the community, well, then it makes sense that Paul would challenge these sorts of vices, all sorts of um, vices which uh, split communities and cause disharmony. Now, such vice lists were actually uh, stock and trade uh, in the ancient world, and they're often linked with lists of virtue as well as Paul does here. Perhaps the most notable example of this is Aristotle, for whom virtue lay at the midpoint between opposed excesses. For example, the virtue of courage was the midway point between the excess of rashness on the one hand and the deficiency of cowardice on the other. There are no prizes for guessing why Paul has listed these vices in particular. They are community-destroying vices which threaten the cohesion of the Galatian family. If the Galatians listen to the promptings of the Spirit, then enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, etc. will be um, cast out of the community and the community will be unified. If people do not walk by the Spirit and continue to indulge whatever they desire, then they will not ultimately inherit the kingdom of God, as Paul says in verse 21. Now, Paul does not make the kind of copious reference to the kingdom of God that one finds in the Synoptic Gospels. On the handful of occasions Paul does use the term, he tends to use it eschatologically. That means to depict some aspect of the afterlife. However, the fruit or the outworkings of the Spirit in verse 22 and following are headed by love. That's the first of the fruits. And again, one needn't think too far, given the context of Galatians, why Paul would lead with love. He's already told us that love is the fulfillment of the law, and that it is the initial fruit of the Spirit, I think, is the first stage in Paul actually suggesting that the work of the Spirit and the work of the law are in harmony. And as we'll see when we get to this phrase, the law of Christ, that that is actually 
um, part and parcel of the new covenant blessing. In verse 24, Paul introduces the second of three instantiations of the Greek verb crucify, which are not related to Jesus' crucifixion. The Greek term is stauroo, and it, the verb appears four times in Galatians, but only in chapter 3, verse 1, is it a reference to the crucifixion of Jesus. In verse 24 of chapter 5 here, Paul expands upon the connection between those who've been justified by faith in Christ and the attendant lifestyle monitored by the Spirit. Now remember in Galatians 2.19, Paul there declared that he had been crucified with Christ. This is how he described the, um, the, the, the pathway of him dying to the law in order that he might live to God. And I think it's reasonable to treat that formula as a standard way that believing Jews come into right relation to God. They die to the law in order that they may live to God in this new way, energized by the risen Christ. But here Paul is speaking of the experience of Gentiles. Obviously Gentiles wouldn't need to die to the law, but their trust in Jesus leads to another form of crucifixion. Paul says here that it's a crucifixion of their desire and passion and lust. The fact that he says those of Christ crucify um, the passions and crucify the flesh with its passions and lusts also suggests that what's happening here is a crucifixion of identity. Paul is linking this change that happens in the Galatians with the experience of Christ. Christ was crucified and now these Gentiles have been crucified with Christ such that their flesh, that weak, susceptible part of who they are, is crucified and they have a new identity, the in Christ identity, enlivened by the risen Christ, by the power of the Spirit. And this is what is summed up in verse 25, and so it needs to be read slightly carefully. The two verbs in verse 25 have to be distinguished sensibly, otherwise what Paul's trying to say becomes obscure. Now the first verb is live, if we live by the Spirit. The second verb, interestingly, is actually the, fer the verb form of the word, which I said in an earlier podcast, refers to the basic elements of the physical universe. Maybe you remember that. In Galatians chapter 4, and we mentioned the stoicheia. And remember the stoicheia in Greek, I suggested, were earth, wind, fire, and water. But the basic meaning of the stoicheia is a sequence of things in a line. Well, the verb stoicheo implies to keep in line with. So the second part of verse 25 says we ought to keep in line with the spirit. In other words, the verbs in verse 25 don't both point to a way of living. So when he says, if we live by spirit, he can't be talking about a way of living. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense because the second verb means a way of living, you know, keep in line with. And so it's like he'd be saying the same thing twice. So the first verb then, live, if we live by spirit, means to be alive on the basis of the spirit, the spirit being the one who conveys the energy of the risen Christ into the believer. And remember, as we've been suggesting throughout, 
that this means to be justified. So really that first section is like a way of saying if we've been justified. So the interpretation of verse 25 is as follows. If the Spirit has enlivened us with the power of the risen Christ, then the Spirit ought to govern our moral compass. If we've been made alive in this way, then it's the Spirit um, we should keep in step with. It's the Spirit's promptings we should follow to know how to live. Indeed, if the Spirit does guide our actions in this way, then as verse 26 dictates, the believers won't be prone to provoking or envying one another. And so Paul hopefully has allayed the fears of the Galatian Gentiles. If they keep in step with the Spirit, they won't become morally bankrupt, even though they are not uh, observing the Jewish law. What we see in this section then is further evidence of the new covenant prophecies taking shape. A people alive because of the Spirit, as we see in Ezekiel 37, and as a result of this, engaging with God's law in an unprecedented fashion as prophesied in Jeremiah 31. Now, whilst there is undoubtedly a sense in which the Spirit offers a new impetus for engaging with God's command, we ought never to forget that the Spirit can be quenched, ignored, or marginalized in our lives. The power of the Spirit is not the absence of moral effort in the faithful. But with that said, in the Spirit there is a freedom, and that freedom must be exercised rightly. The lives of Jesus' students can never be reduced to a list of rules. There's no tick box of spiritual disciplines which, if done frequently enough, constitute discipleship. Walking with the Spirit is a life of continual obedience to God's commands, so that those with faith might hone their ability to hear the voice of the Spirit and know what the right thing to do in, is in any given circumstance, whether there is a, a scriptural mandate for it or not. Remember, the destiny of God's law is not stone tablets, but the hearts of Jesus' people. Here, the Spirit gives us a special connection to the demands and desires of heaven, and we do well to listen with increasing sharpness so that the demands and desires of heaven become more and more and more our second nature.